Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. On today's program, Leonard Peltier, The Walk to Justice, will hear from his youngest daughter and get an update on the 1,100-mile march that concluded this past November 13th in Washington, D.C. We'll get an update on Leonard Peltier's health condition and the work being done seeking executive clemency for international political prisoner Leonard Peltier. And in the second half of today's program, an escalation and spike in new forms of violence against indigenous peoples in Chiapas, Mexico, and throughout the region. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone through air in the black of the night. You can hear, you can hear the whisper in the valley. Mm-hmm. And you know when come a cunny blows to the bar who drum. The American Indian Movement Grand Governing Council began the Leonard Peltier's Walk to Justice on September 1st of 2022, beginning in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and concluding on November 13th at Lincoln Park in Washington, D.C. The Leonard Peltier Walk to Justice concluded with over 2,000 supporters. Leonard Peltier was convicted in 1977 for aiding and abetting the murder of two FBI agents on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in June 1975. He was sentenced to two consecutive terms of life imprisonment, has been incarcerated for more than 47 years. This week, I have the honor and pleasure to speak with his youngest daughter, Kathy Peltier, on Leonard Peltier's Walk to Justice, an update on his health condition and the work that's being done seeking executive clemency for the most well-known international indigenous political prisoner, Leonard Peltier. Yep, a she a Kathy Dennis about Peltier. Oh yeah, she ma a ambigue. She's at a Leonard Peltier. She a not kind of nice. When I do, Ogallala Koto do Turtle Mountain. Hello, my name is Kathy Peltier. My parents are ambigue and Leonard Peltier. I am enrolled member of the Navajo tribe and um, also part of the Lakota and Turtle Mountain tribe. I um just came off a walk now nearing two weeks which was the Leonard Peltier Walk to Justice. And um, it was two years in the planning of uh, doing this to make awareness to um, different generation that we have now. And a lot of people don't know who is Leonard Peltier. And so this was a time to educate people who he is, make um, Congress, the senators know, or, you know, say we need to get, you know, my dad released, who is Leonard Peltier. And who's been in falsely imprisoned for the last 47 years. Kathy, can you give our listeners a sense of the conclusion for the Leonard Peltier walk to justice 
in Washington, D.C. at Lincoln Park on November 13th, where approximately over 2,000 supporters showed up. Well, I I really thought it was actually a really good crowd that came um, unexpectedly. And um, since it was a Sunday, uh, we were making people aware of who Leonard Peltier is. And um, my my understanding is that um, two other people and I don't count me on this, but I believe Kevin Sharp was there to meet with senators and people in Congress and to speak about my support of uh, my dad's release. And, and just for audience's clarification, that's uh, the attorney, right, working on the case. Yes, Kevin Sharp is the attorney, uh, current attorney right. for my dad. Well, I, and, and that's good. Good to know, because I know your dad's had, uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, a handful of attorneys over the over the years. And, you know, you mentioned um, or a few moments ago, you mentioned that, uh, you know, part of this walk was reeducating people, just uh, reeducating people that maybe have forgotten uh, about your dad, but also, you know, the next generation that Correct. has come up in the communities that don't simply, they have no memory or understanding of what happened and what life was like for the previous generation or generations in the 60s and into the 70s. And I was wondering if for our listeners, um, just like with uh, one of the reasons for the walk and educating people about your dad, if you could share with us about you know, who your dad is and why he's still serving two consecutive life sentences based on fabricated FBI evidence, amongst other reasons. Well, what I usually tell people when I speak about my dad, a brief, um, not getting too much um, technical terms, the basic terms is I usually tell people on June 26, 1975, a shootout broke up, broke out on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation on the Jumping Bull Ranch, where women and children are housed at a main house, and there is, you know, people who were camping, and they and these guys were these people that came onto the Jumping Bull Ranch were actually um, helping protect, you know, the elders that were asked to come to the jump to the uh, reservation, and of. June 26, 1975, two FBI agents came on to the, uh, to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation um, pursuing, on the Jumping Roll Ranch, pursuing mm. a man uh, who stole a pair of boots. Why were they there? Why? They didn't have no jurisdiction, but they started shooting at this Indian man named Joe. And because of the crossfires, and then there was women and children in the house, you know, uh, the three people... Dino Butler, Bob Rabadou, who is actually my uncle, and Leonard Peltier went and retaliated and fired back because they were protecting these women and children. And they all escaped because they knew it was going to be complete prosecution. So they just, so um, Dino Butler and Bob Rabadou ran um, south. My dad ran north. And in a sense, the whole time, my, um, Dino and Bob Rabadou got caught in Wichita because they got caught there. You know, um, and my dad was in um, Canada, and Dino and Butler got uh, trialed, in, um, and they were set for um, going through the whole trial. The judge called it self-defense. So thinking it, um, 
And at the time, the judge wanted to trial all three, all three, my dad, Dino Butler, and my uncle Bob Rabadou. But the case was taken away after um, he found him um, with self-defense. And my dad got illegally extradited to, um, to the U.S. by false affidavit. And um, there were China's, well, since they couldn't go on the murder charges because the other two were on um, self-defense, they tried to find a way saying he was the one that that um, killed the FBI agents that were on that that were on the reservation or on the Jumping Bull Ranch, and because they couldn't find anything and they couldn't and they they had a woman falsely accuse him and say, well, yeah, he he was the one that um, he was the one that was my boyfriend. And he also um, killed these FBI agents point blank. Well, come down to it, she wanted to change. She was trying to change it all to make it because she was never there. And because and then so then um, they tried to do the ballistic testings, and none of the ballistics uh, was match his firearm that he held. So um, and now, so my dad's in there for aiding and abetting, and he's been in there for. 47 years for a crime he never committed. And if you want to learn more about it in detail, you can always go to whoisleonardpeltier.info. It's what I usually go with um, uh, the short version of um, talking about my dad, because then I talk about who who I am. I'm, you know, I, I'm his youngest daughter, you know, Kathy Peltier, and I, I don't know who my dad is. Mm. Well, thank you for, for sharing that with us. And I was wondering... Um, I've had the honor and pleasure to talk to you in the, in the past, uh, mm-hmm. you know, about your dad and, and the work that you and, and your brother have, uh, have been doing over the years. And I was wondering, um, in sharing why Leonard, your dad, ended up in prison and still wrongfully incarcerated and serving two consecutive life sentences in a federal penitentiary, you know, uh, a lot of people are unaware that your dad is actually, you know, one of the most well-known international political prisoners outside of the United States. And, but yet within the United States, um, you know, a lot of people don't know who he is and they don't understand that, that history and what time was like for Native American peoples and, you know, in the sixties and into the seventies. And, and I know, um, I was wondering if maybe you could share with us, uh, how your dad's been doing in prison. I, I know earlier in the year when we covered the case, um, you know, with COVID and, and whatnot, and just the, the difficulties of, um, navigating the prison industrial complex system, you know, he had several health issues that he's been dealing with. And I was wondering if you have any information to share with our listeners regarding his health. And Oh, yeah, I actually do. Yeah. And, you know, and maybe and then talk more about, you know, this history and, and this and the importance of, of clemency for your dad. Well, let me address um, the health issue first. And um, because that that's the one reason why not one reason, but that's one of the many reasons why he needs to be out. And not only that, but, you know, he, he's serving a life term that never was committed. And why is he in there? Why is he still continuing being there if it's just aiding and abetting? And, um, but, you know, um, over the years of being in prison, he has, ha- has had an, um, he has an uh, aortic 
aneurysm that measures 3.5 diameters, and they will do they will not do anything with it until it reaches five di- diameters. He has diabetes, which has resulted in the loss of vision in one eye and numbness in his extremity. Plus, he is not on a diabetic diet, just a portion reduced diet, which includes bread and uh, pancakes. He also has an untreated um, prostate problem, which could be cancerous. He has a heart condition that allowed that followed a triple bypass about six years ago. And he has kidney issues, spots on his lungs, and in is in need of hip and knee replacements. After contacting, after contacting COVID in January of this year, he, w- he has not, to our knowledge, been able to see a, a specialist regarding the effect on any of these combobarities. In fact, clinical testing have shown that all of these combobarities will um, was probably you know like more or less after the contacting the COVID. Mm. So you know that's just a list of what um, I was told that he has, and I remember that just hearing the the you know the slight bypass and everything was devastating because you know we didn't know what was going on. Um, our dad was not um, contacted to contact anybody for a few days, so we were all like freaking out, like what you know, expecting the worst. But you know, thank God he got out of the bypass. So um, you know. And what was the other question? I'm sorry. Well, I was asking uh, as well about uh, just the the legacy and the ongoing work for clemency uh, for your dad. And where where are we now at that? Because I know, um, you, you know, and I'll, I'll let you, uh, you know, maybe if you can share with us, um, there has been some activity and, you know, October of last year and earlier this year in February with certain House Democrats actually urging, you know, President Joe Biden to grant clemency for your dad, who's, you know, 77 years old. And and as you just stated, uh, you know, tested, you know, positive for COVID earlier this year. And and this is in addition to his struggling health adversities from diabetes and hypertension to blindness, right, to the abdominal erotic aneurysm, you know, plus other uh, health issues. Well, I'm going to go back to where I remember where everything pretty much started for me. Um, in 2016, in the first week of December, we called it Peltier Week. We, we've we always tried to go to senators and always tried to go to Congress or, you know, um, anyone in the White House to talk to these senators and be like urging the president to get, you know, a clemency for my dad or get him released. And if it's not clemency, it's pardoned. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Kathy Peltier on Leonard Peltier's Walk to Justice and seeking executive clemency for international political prisoner Leonard Peltier. And now back to the interview. So we've always done that. And so uh, the week of in December of 2016, we went there to, um, we called it Peltier Week, and we went there to talk to different senators. We had a press conference. We had, um, we had different things going on to meet with different people. I unfortunately had to leave on the last day of the event, what was their rally. And, um, and only because Amnesty International had um, asked me to 
you know, speak on behalf of my dad at a, you know, at a special event. And um, and the whole process of that, it really, it really broke our hearts. And it still, <clears throat> we lost my brother mm-hmm. <clears throat> in 2016, uh, getting, you know, the Congress or people in the White House to see how urgent that he needs to see his kids and be with his family. And that, you know, um, you know, and get to know his grandchildren and great grandchildren. And um, it devastated, you know, the siblings and a lot of people, you know, especially my dad. And so with that whole thing going on, um, my brother going with the rally, we're doing this, we we came together thinking, okay, well, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? You know, like, you know, now it's, (laughs) we're losing our family members and um, especially our own siblings. So, you know, it took us time to understand that, you know, we still need to fight for our dad. We need to, you know, um, we have to. I mean, it's not like we, we get a choice like a lot of people do. I mean, yeah, we have a choice, but this is our own flesh and blood, our dad. And so Amnesty International came forward to us and said, you know what, let's try a different route. Why don't you write, you and your brother, write a letter stating how you need to, um, how this is affecting you as a person and your family and, uh, and we'll send it to different uh, senators. And so we thought about it for a few days and then we said, okay, we'll do it. So we, um, and I believe that was in the middle of 2017 or around that time. So we wrote this letter thinking in my part and my own, uh, I didn't think it was going to get anywhere, but then we started getting letters. We started getting, um, you know, different people wanted to talk to us. And, um, and a big one for me was when uh, Deb Holland reached out to me and said, you know, I, I support, you know, the, you know, the release of your dad. And I was, I didn't, you know, that was a big deal at the time, you know, at least a senator was kind of reaching out to me and, um, and it was like going to make sure that, you know, his, you know, all this was being, you know, told to different senators who are in support for my dad. And so then it just started feeling like it was building up more and more momentum about who my dad is. And then when this walk came on, that's when, you know, like, um, we're like, okay, now we need to get more press going on. There is even, um, you know, the Leonard Peltier Defense Committee, Gene Roach, Lana Knight, and um, Carol Gokey went overseas to um, get these different um, people from, like, Rome, Germany, Switzerland, um, uh, Paris. And uh, which I was a part of, to go and talk to these representatives to push their, you know, people to, you know, speak on getting my dad freed. And so, so you know, um, that all momentum started up back then. And now, you know, like, it, it's just more prominent that we need to get him out because, you know, um, you know, his, as I just told you, his health issues are a big issue, you know, like, what if, you know, one day he just wakes up and he's gone because of his aneurysm reached a, a more than 0.5 or, or 5. And that's, you know, like, that would be even more devastating and to hear, you know, that our dad died in prison. Kathy, you mentioned Paris and, you know, during the the Leonard Peltier walk for, to justice, uh, which began on September 1st in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and then concluded in Washington, D.C., Lincoln Park on November 13th. In between that, you traveled to Paris as well as part of the work 
to seek out international support. And I was wondering for our listeners, can you share with us uh, your experiences and your trip to Paris and and what happened and whether or not uh, you found it successful and, and helpful? Well, it was fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, besides the whole translation and everything, it was very receptive. I mean, the people, I mean, I didn't realize what, you know, my dad, my dad is in over there and um, who my dad is to them over there. They're like, you know, we need his freedom. And the fact that, you know, every time we talked about him and um, it was very receptive and, um, you know, people were like, oh, my gosh, you know, um, I, I've never, you know, just to meet a family member, his own daughter was very, to me, it felt like they were saying it was an impact on them because now they can realize, you know, he's just not a man that they know of that needs to be freed, but a man that has children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And so every time we went into different, um, we had a meeting pretty much, um, a talking, speaking engagement. Our first day was actually with the French um, parliament or embassy, and they sat with us, they broke bread with us, and then they're like, we will write support we will support and write letters to Biden and we will get um, different people in the parliament to write as well. So that, you know, um, because, you know, his, his injustice is, you know, um, he needs to be helped. Mm. And so I really enjoyed talking with different people, you know, um, them getting to know me as, you know, his daughter and not only that, but, you know, fighting for his freedom. And I just thought it was, in a fabulous event because pretty much every time we, we had, um, it was pretty much packed pretty much. I, um, with people wanting to hear and, um, about, you know, who is Leonard Peltier, who, you know, what can they do? What, you know, and, and we just tell them, you know, write letters to Biden or call, you know, the, the uh, white house line. And so, um, it was, I, I don't know how to explain it, but, it was actually really fabulous, but um, I don't know. I, I I can't really explain how welcoming and people from different countries. I mean, it was just exciting to know that people from Pakistan know. And I'm like, wow. It just didn't really occur to me when you first said, you know, like he's known all over the world. It didn't really occur to me until you actually said that. And I was like, he is, you know, um, he's known all over the world for, you know, the injustice. It's just, it's, you know, it's just getting him out now is what we're trying to do. And, and having support from different um, congressional people of, you know, of outside of the world and um, them saying that they're, they're in support and they are going to write a letter um, to Biden to get his release was an awesome feeling for the outcome. And, uh, and that's what we went over there for, to, you know, um, to talk to these people and, to, you know, have these meetings with them and to, you know, um, get that support, telling, you know, Biden, we need to get him freed. And uh, the more people we can get to write Biden a letter, the um, I believe the better chances we'll have. Kathy, over the decades since your dad's wrongful incarceration, 
every president of the United States has declined to grant executive clemency for your dad. And every president has had either four or eight year terms. Presently, you know, the Biden administration's in midterm of their first four year term as uh, being president of the United States, possibly uh, an eight year term. So I was wondering if you can talk about the urgency of petitioning or putting pressure on the White House to grant immediate executive clemency for your dad? The urgency is more or less because of his health issues. And, um, and he, you know, being, he's not a threat to, um, he's not a threat to this world. And um, I don't know why people think he's a threat. I mean, he's a 77 year old man who has health issues and why, you know, cause people always go back to, well, he, you know, he's a threat. How is he a threat when he's <laughs> an old man? I'm sorry to say that, but, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, more or less is his health issues and that he needs to spend time with his family. He committed nothing. He, he only fought for his people as he always says that, you know, that that's his only crime. And, uh, you know, and I, I, originally just tell people, you know, like, um, the best way right now is to call the hotline 202-456-1111 and, um, or to write him letters, write, you know, co- consistently write letters to, you know, Biden, get awareness. And that's what, what that walk was all about too, is, uh, giving awareness to who he is and that, you know, he's still in prison. Mm-hmm. And when they had just, you know, um, who is it? They just, they just release. I mean, he's, you say that, you know, he does it after four year term, but he just, he released when I was in, I believe when I was in um, Pittsburgh, they had released Tupac Shakur's stepdad. And uh, so, you know, he, they just released him. So why not my dad? Mutulu Shakur was just, compa- had, just got compassionate release two days before. And that was on November 12th, that was given to me. So about November, you know, November 10th, he was you know, on compassionate release. So why uh, does it sound like they have to wait uh, for the four-year term up? It can just be my dad has ailments, and I'm sure um, Mutula Shakir, Shakir had um, ailments too, and, you know, and he's an old man. So in my opinion, I don't think um, it doesn't have to be for your term. I think it can just be, you know, like after Christmas or something. And that was Kathy Peltier speaking on international indigenous political prisoner Leonard Peltier. The Leonard Peltier's walk to justice and update on Leonard's health condition and the work being done seeking to demand executive clemency for international indigenous political prisoner Leonard Peltier. For those of you wishing to call the White House, you can call 202-456-1111 and demand executive clemency for international political prisoner Leonard Peltier. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You and me, we must agree.
observation, dislocation Grind with my mind, I'm a seventh generation Succeed when we plant the seeds Knowing that we'll never sit under the shade of the tree Wisdom we know, live the two row Only get the fruit of the seed that you sow Still wanna know, where will you go When the water won't flow and the plants won't grow Really though, how deep is the greed Got a billion dollars now, how much you need Think I tell my soul you must not know me The song Save the Planet Now by Irv Lyons Jr. Here on American Indian Airwaves in the final segment of today's program, we go to Chiapas, Mexico, and throughout the region, as there's been a recent spike in escalation in the murder of indigenous peoples by the state and the cartels. Our guest for the remaining segment of today's program is Richard Stuller Schulk, who's a longtime community activist for the School of Chiapas where Marcus Lopez and myself have the honor and pleasure in speaking with him as he gives us an update on the murder state throughout Chiapas, Mexico, and the surrounding areas. Sadly, there's been a significant increase in escalation in levels of violence in the southeast Mexican state of Chiapas, a state that has large indigenous populations. And there are different kinds of violence that are happening within that overall framework. I'd say in the last year, we're seeing several different kinds of violence on, significantly on the rise. One is directly coming from the government. Um, the current administration in Mexico of President Andres Manuel López Obrador, known by his initials AMLO, has uh, significantly increased the militarization of the country, uh, creating and then deploying a brand new force called the National Guard, a militarized uh, force, and uh, they already have installed at least 10 National Guard barracks in the state of Chiapas with more under construction, um, and that has ostensibly been to control or curtail the violence coming from other sources, but it's sort of like throwing gasoline onto a fire. Then in the context of recent state and municipal elections uh, in Chiapas, um, there was more violence than even had been seen in previous rounds of elections, and that seems to be a reflection of a breakdown in what had been a long-standing truce between the major national drug cartels, at least in the territory in Chiapas, the kind of division of the turf. And so the new strategy of some of the cartels to try to erode the base of the competing cartels is to infiltrate local municipal governments, which in the case of Chiapas are very often indigenous governments, um, and to control the election by either threatening or bribing or outright rigging uh, the results. Um, and so that has set off another wave of violence around election time. Then uh, there's the, uh, the criminal syndicates themselves. I'll come back to them in a minute. But in the face of that uh, increase in violence by criminal organizations, some indigenous communities have formed their own armed self-defense forces out of frustration with the government's unwillingness or inability to do anything to control the violence and its impact. And then the criminal syndicates themselves, which uh, have been a longstanding phenomenon in Mexico, but are um, getting increasingly violent and the violence is touching communities in Chiapas in new ways, they're often referred to somewhat misleadingly as um, drug cartels, but actually they are quite diversified criminal operations with local spin-off gangs. And here's where we see one of the newer forms of uh, violence affecting specifically indigenous communities in, in Chiapas, where some indigenous youth facing unemployment, landlessness, various kinds of 
social challenges that governments have not been very responsive to um, have been sort of ripe for recruitment by the criminal organizations, kind of like subcontracting uh, the violence, and some of them have kind of spun off and created their own um, local gangs in the uh, the city of San Cristobal de las Casas, uh, which you know is kind of known to tourists as a, a sleepy and quaint uh, uh, town, but now um, violence has broken out um, there as well. Uh, so one of the um, gangs that has been active in San Cristobal in uh, recent times uh, is uh, had its its roots in the highland community of uh, Chamula, and so the members are known as the Chamula Cartel, and there are some spin-off gangs from that group as well. Um, but it would be a mistake to think that this is specifically a drug issue or that it is initiated by the indigenous communities. Um, that That structure of kind of corrupt local indigenous chiefdoms in the highlands goes way back to the time when the ruling pre-party, the PRI, uh, controlled Mexico from top to bottom and used these local structures of control, like the sort of boss politics that they um, reinforce in the indigenous highlands of Chiapas. So in the last couple of decades, as the uh, drug and other criminal operations penetrated into Chiapas, those local chieftains sort of latched on to those lucrative sources of revenue, which include drugs, but also prostitution, migrant trafficking, extortion, arms sales, uh, DVD pirating, trafficking stolen cars, um, you name it. Um, and so in recent months, there were several flare-ups of violence in which um, a uh, kind of motorcycle gang uh, attached to the Chamula uh, cartel um, was involved in uh, shootouts and, and armed attacks in San Cristobal in uh, this um, kind of tourist city in, in Chiapas. So that's a little bit of a quick overview of some of the new twists and turns that um, of violence that's affecting the indigenous communities. Richard, in the article, uh, I'm referring to the article from School for Chiapas, an article written by R. Ida Hernandez-Castillo talks about the, this realm of, of these, um, what she calls a taboo theme among anthro anthropologists, that the images of, of the organized crime has infiltrated the indigenous communities physically or culturally kidnapping the youth. The Tocel, the Tecital, the Mayo, Yorne, the Yaqui, the the Nisiko, the Ramamuri, and the Puriyukuche men and young men forced or seduced by narco cultures are being recruited by the cartels. And that, to me, when I read that, I'm going, it's a similar thing where along with the North America phenomena, a lot mm -hmm. of these particular veins of narco trafficking, as well as the organized way to transport the drugs, have influenced a lot of reservations and urban areas uh, with a lot of young people doing that, um, picking up that romantic view of of trade and whatnot in that criminal activity. Do you see a correlation within that, within this social structure and what the Zapatistas are trying to do with their autonomy versus in, not in conflict, but these cartels and these for, the criminal forces, whether it be the government, paramilitary activity or these veins of 
of criminal activity have really entered into the realm of everyday lives for indigenous people of that area of the world. Uh, what comes to mind, you're talking about the chieftains or the corletos. Why don't you talk, to, talk about that, some background on that? Sure. I definitely think that there are parallels. I think anywhere where people, groups of people are uh, disempowered, impoverished, and left desperate, um, then they uh, can fall prey um, to the seeming opportunity created by um, various kinds of criminal pursuits and structures that gives them, especially young men, a kind of uh, status in their uh, community and power over others that they are otherwise lacking. And that's where something like the Zapatista project of autonomy is a completely different project of life as opposed to these kinds of projects of death. Um, that is creating self-governing structures in communities instead of being under the thumb of a, a powerful chieftain or boss and creating ways of being self-sufficient and preserving dignity through uh, tradition and culture as opposed to uh, pursuing the latest flashy thing that comes along. Um, so these are really two very different ways, um, but um, the people who fall into, unfortunately, these violent patterns are really, and this is the, the point of the article that you mentioned, victims more than anything else. There's a tendency in the media to kind of demonize, for example, the Chamula cartel and say, oh, uh, you know, using racist imagery that these are indigenous people who are just violent aggressors. And, um, and really what it is, is more like, as Aida Hernandez says in this, she's a, a brilliant anthropologist in this article, uh, it's a kind of ethnocidal violence in which the indigenous people are the ones who are being subjected to the violence and, and really uh, victimized in so many ways, including the victimization that comes from snatching away the young men and tearing apart the families and bringing the men into this, uh, this violent um, culture. Um, so um, uh, that's what uh, the article is referring to, and that really presents this sort of stark um, dichotomy between, again, the, the kind of culture of life and dignity and self-sufficiency that the Zapatistas are presenting and the kind of desperation that's left at the margins of a capitalist project, uh, which is the, the, the reigning uh, government project and has been for some time in Mexico. Um, which kind of brings me to the subject of the, uh, the Zapatistas. Um, the uh, Zapatistas have been also affected by this violence and militarization because of the deployment of National Guard units, often very close to the Zapatista Caracoles, their regional um, centers of self-governance. Um, the Zapatistas have kind of hunkered down uh, in a more defensive posture. Um, uh, because they are as well victims of the, uh, in this case, the government violence of those National Guard uh, units. The Zapatistas have pretty effectively kept the criminal organizations out of their own autonomous territories. Um, but um, you know, the, uh, the government, in many cases, is in league with the criminal organizations. We saw this most clearly in the disappearance, the forced disappearance of the 43 uh, young um, teacher training college students uh, in, the, in Ayotzinapa uh, a few years ago. Um, so the, uh, the Zapatistas have been, while they've been kind of staying mostly in their communities and, and caracoles in, uh, in the wake of this upsurge in violence, 
they have continued to denounce uh, the projects, what they call the projects of death, the mega projects of, uh, that have continued apace under the uh, current government in, in Mexico. So these massive projects that masquerade as being friendly to indigenous peoples uh, are being rammed down the throats of indigenous peoples without uh, the legally required consultations, and that is creating another source of potentially violent conflict, not just in Chiapas, but in many regions of Mexico. Yes, Richard, um, I want to just point out in, in the support, the Chiapas Support Committee uh, webpage, you know, the Indigenous Peoples, Narco Violence, and Paramilitarism, two individuals that I want to uh, mention, Tomas Rojo, uh, Yaqui defender of territory and rights of his people, assassination, and also the um, Simon Pedro, the former president of Las Abejas, uh, and the defender of the rights of the people, two individuals that were murdered. And this is the result of the communities and different communities in Mexico responding to this oppression that the society has created this criminal elements elements and uh, this um, Mexico's war against indigenous movement and losing of people's most committee defenders of territory and people's rights. Um, yes. Can you talk about those two individuals? Um, do you know about them? And and what was the background of these two um, two individuals? One was one from one area or the other, and the other person was some other area. Please share with us what you know. Sure, and this is a good illustration of the kind of um, indirect effects of the various forms of violence going on. So the Yaqui territory, where Tomas Rojo, the Yaqui uh, land and territory defender, uh, that territory is in the northwest of Mexico, and actually uh, some Yaqui territory is in um, uh, what's considered the United States by the United States government. Um, so that's in the northwest of Mexico, and Chiapas uh, is all the way in the other extreme corner of the country in the southeast, and yet um, we see the same kind of pattern, that anyone who stands up, like these indigenous leaders that you mentioned, um, and tries to defend their, their communities and their rights against the uh, depredations of global capital and these mega projects and the governments that are backing them um, finds themselves targeted by the state for uh, repression. And uh, so they're subject of repression from the, the government, from the, uh, the, the corporations that are backing these major projects, these mega projects, and also, of course, from the, the criminal syndicates. And when they stand up and create self-defense forces to try to uh, hold off the um, the criminal organizations, then that in turn is also criminalized by the government. And so they're facing this sort of triad of um, the, the government, the, uh, the criminal organizations, and the uh, transnational corporations, which are sort of all intertwined um, with overlapping projects uh, that involve displacing and driving off indigenous people. Sometimes it's a little bit more subtle. So for example, among the many mega projects that the current administration in Mexico is backing heavily is one that is a supposedly an eco-tourist project um, that would uh, build infrastructure between San Cristobal in, in Chiapas and 
the Mayan ruins in Palenque, and then all the way up to the Mayan ruins in the um, in the Yucatan uh, Peninsula. Um, so that would involve massively displacing communities, constructing highways, tourist facilities, um, mega highways, uh, facilities for um, cruise ships to pull up and uh, unload tons of uh, wealthy tourists who would then be able to zip along super highways and high-speed trains to um, visit these sites. So uh, what's happening there is not only the displacement of communities, but also creating a kind of disnification of indig indigenous people and destroying culture and identity. And so the only uh, livelihood that would be left for people who are so displaced would be to you know, become employees, presumably, in these uh, Disney-like facilities. Um, this is what the anthropologist Charles Hale referred to as neoliberal multiculturalism, uh, because the government, when they faced opposition, they simply renamed the highway Highway of the Cultures um, and claimed that they had uh, received the blessing of indigenous communities, which, in fact, they had not. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Richard stoller Shulk. He's Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Eastern Michigan University and a community activist involved with the School of Chiapas. He's speaking on the recent escalation in new forms of violence leading to a spike in murders of indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas, Mexico. And now back to the interview. The indigenous communities went to court. They were able to block construction of one stretch of the, uh, the highway, um, whereupon the government just renamed the highway, claimed it was a different uh, project, and arrested uh, one of the um, leading indigenous opponents of this particular mega project. This, the project would have brought in a five-star European hotel and a golf course and various other luxury facilities. And this Celtal uh, man, Manuel Santis Cruz, I was a pastoral agent of the church of the Diocese of San Cristobal, and he was arrested on quite dubious charges, really because he had been an activist opposing this mega project. So uh, we see the violence in many ways, the violent displacement of people from their territories, the cultural violence of uh, turning indigenous people into nothing more than uh, paid tourist attractions, uh, the violence of trampling on the law and the constitutional rights, um, and then the violence of uh, repressing, arresting anyone who opposes any of these schemes. So many levels uh, and layers of violence can be seen in that example. Richard, we've seen that the death of Tomas Rojo and the earlier murder of his compañero Luis Urbano that was uh, preceded by a violent activity against the Yaqui people opposing the plunder and the aquifer with the construction of an independent aquifer. So we can see that when people talk about water protectors in Mexico, as in rest of the internal island of ours, we can see that these original water protectors are um, having their life on the line, which means the end of life uh, within these what you talked about, capitalist accumulation, you talked about construction and mimicking these ecotourist and also these phenomena of modernizing, quote-unquote, and doing it better with the community, this uh, independent aquifer and many of those items as far as not addressing the question of what indigenous people feel like has its toll. 
And so I was, I know Larry has this question, but I was wondering of this particular aqueduct, uh, where is that at and um, any particular recent information on that? Um, well, the northwest of Mexico, the Yaqui territory, where the aquifer uh, construction was underway, is, of course, very dry, desert-like uh, territory. I had the opportunity to visit once. Um, during the time I was there, a group of Yaquis were actually blocking uh, the main uh, stretch of the Pan-American Highway and got the attention of the authorities that way. And many of them were then subject to uh, arrest warrants and, and threats by the, uh, the government. Um, obviously, water is life anywhere, and particularly in a desert climate like that, uh, water for drinking and water for the agriculture on which uh, people uh, depend. Um, so it's all part of a pattern of treating water, land, uh, even the air with these um, so-called wind uh, energy projects, which when you create massive wind farms over a, a vast area of territory, it's, uh, it's not as green as it sounds. It's actually quite environmentally and, um, and culturally devastating uh, to the populations living there. So all that becomes a commodity, the water, the air, the land, and in a sense, even the people uh, who have lived in harmony uh, on that land and are um, uh, preserving the traditional ways of using and working with Mother Nature on that land, it's all commodified um, for the benefit of global capital. So this is sort of the connecting thread um, between those incidents. I don't know the current state of the aqueduct project in uh, Yaqui territory. I've been more focused on what's happening in Chiapas in the southeast. But again, it's a similar pattern. In the central part of the country, there's another mega project called the Morelos Integral Project. Um, so very often, these are multifaceted projects of infrastructure, energy, extraction, uh, et cetera. And that would be an example of one of these kind of multifaceted projects. Or the Trans-Isthmian Corridor, the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, which is just west of uh, Chiapas um, and uh, on the eastern part of uh, the state of Oaxaca. It's a narrowing stretch of land between the oceans. So there are major wind currents that have led to investment by Spanish and other um, energy firms in these huge wind farms displacing fisher folk and other um, uh, subsistence communities from that um, area and from their livelihoods. Uh, but it would also involve, if this ever reaches completion, uh, construction of deep water ports, high-speed rail lines, all for global commerce. Uh, there'll be very little benefit to local communities, quite the contrary, much harm done. Um, but meanwhile, uh, it will be possible for global corporations to move their goods between the oceans, sort of like uh, a new version of the Panama Canal, except um, in a, a different technological form. Um, so all of these projects are kind of flying in the face of indigenous views of nature and Mother Earth, thinking instead of all of these of air and water and land and, and even people, again, as simply commodities, things to be bought and sold or discarded uh, when they are no longer useful. So this is why for the Zapatistas and many other indigenous people throughout Mexico, this is a struggle for life. Um, it's a struggle for a way of life and a struggle for livelihood and a struggle for dignified existence.
And just kind of sticking with everything you've been talking about and the number of indigenous lives that have been taken, I know in the state of Guerrero, and maybe you can speak to this, on uh, November 5th, uh, three uh, indigenous peoples were murdered. And I was wondering if maybe you could talk about that and how does that relate to this this escalation of this tangled skein of, uh, of violence that indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas are presently enduring. Sure. The state of Guerrero has been uh, in a state of high violence um, because many of the particularly drug trafficking branches of the criminal organizations are very active um, in Guerrero as both a production and a transshipment area. Um, and, uh, so that has created a lot of tension, and um, I mentioned before the self-defense forces that some indigenous communities have created, and that's been another source of tension as the government doing nothing about the criminal violence, but then criminalizing the self-defense response of indigenous communities adds another layer of repression. Um, it was in the state of Guerrero where the uh, disappearance the forced disappearance of the 43 students took place. And many of the students were uh, young indigenous uh, young men from often poor rural communities who were studying to become rural school teachers at this teacher's college to go back to their communities and try to keep their communities alive and give people a reason to stay in their communities and not simply uh, migrate in desperation. Um, So, those kinds of projects, whether it's the Zapatistas or a rural teacher's college, uh, are just somehow seen as threatening to the government. The government has, for a long time, treated the rural teacher's colleges as a kind of dangerous hotbed of radical ideas and of empowerment of poor and indigenous people. Um, so uh, that incident in Guerrero was a good example. We'll probably may never get to the bottom of exactly what happened, who took them and how and why, but what appears to be emerging despite the government's best efforts to cover up any investigation is that the local military base uh, was collaborating actively with the drug trafficking organizations in that region, um, and the students accidentally uh, got in the way of this operation when they uh, were commandeering some buses to go to their annual protest in Mexico City. Um, and uh, the AMLO administration, the current president of Mexico, came in uh, in part uh, portraying himself as a reformer, as a friend of indigenous people, claiming that he was going to investigate the Ayotzinapa disappearance and you know bring justice to Mexico. Um, but you know, finally, after much pressure, uh, there was uh, an announcement that there was an arrest of um, a retired army general who had been the colonel in uh, commanding the military base uh, outside of Ayotzinapa, and presumably um, directing that repressive operation and the disappearance. Um, but following his arrest, he was then uh, released. Um, so once again, we seem to be seeing more of the same, a pattern of impunity. And really, uh, the country is so militarized, the political system is so militarized, that the government couldn't effectively deliver on a promise to hold the military accountable because the military is one of the mainstays of support for the system. Um, So 
Amnon has had to sort of make his deals with the military, including creating this new militarized National Guard police slash military uh, force. Um, so Guerrero is right in the center of all that. The, um, uh, the Zapatistas have teamed up in recent years uh, with the National Indigenous Congress of Mexico, the CNI. Um, this is the group that unites the 60-plus indigenous groups all across the Mexican territory. And the CNI created a national indigenous uh, council of government um, and actually symbolically ran a presidential candidate in the 2018 elections. Um, and so the Guerrero branch of that national indigenous council has been actively denouncing the repression, including the, the, the incident, the repression that you referred to. Um, and uh, so um, uh, that's, you know, again, an illustration of how, on the one hand, you get all of these autonomous and um, self-defense and, and other kinds of, of projects um, uh, trying to preserve a space for indigenous and other communities to exist in peace. And on the other hand, the uh, large corporate interests, drug trafficking cartels, and uh, the politicians uh, who are on the other side who would like to repress those and silence those voices of protest and continue their lucrative activities. The moment of silence is over. And that was Richard Stoller Schulk, community activist for the School of Chiapas, providing us a crucial update on the recent escalation of violence and murder of indigenous peoples throughout the southeastern portion of Mexico. That concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guests, Kathy Peltier and Richard Stoller Schulk. A special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Starr, Irv Lyons Jr., and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Wearing their souls on the thread. The moment of silence is over. And for the innocent, you can't justify why your freedom manifests on their graves. And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds, nor the hands that hold the chains. Silence is over.